Thank you for joining the Broken Road to Mental Health podcast. I'm your host, Sharon Feckety, and I'm so glad you are on this broken road with me. I hope you will find value in this podcast, and if you do, share it with somebody else who too might be struggling on this broken road to mental health in life and in business. Thank you for joining. I have to do it, yeah. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Sharon Feckety, your host with a bit of a uh, laryngitis type voice. I was in Chicago and I brought that weather back to Tampa Bay that is living inside of my body right now and has taken away my voice from all the cold and all the rain. Us people in Florida are not used to that, including my guest today, who is Michelle Terman, the founder and CEO of Catalyst Consulting Services and so much more that we're going to get into, but I would first like to just welcome you to the show. Thank you, Sharon. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you, girl. <laughs> so Michelle and I have known each other a few years now. What year do you think it was? Because I wouldn't know. It's got to be about five or six years now. At least. I think women in Tampa Bay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the first time I met you, actually, was at the Bel Air... Um, country club when Jessica, the founder of Working Women at Tampa Bay, had a little breakfast for a few of us and announced that you're going to be the catalyst of the foundation. Is that right? Yes, yes. We helped form the foundation that now gives out micro grants for women starting businesses. Yes, good memory. It's amazing. I can't remember what I did last night, but I can remember that. So it was a profound moment. So Michelle does a lot of great work um, all throughout Tampa Bay and beyond, um, but she's also the best-selling author of Jumping the Queue. So um, I'm excited to talk about her new uh, recording of her Audible book. How was your recording in the, um, the studio, Michelle? You know, it was an excellent experience. I learned so much. I have never done that before. I learned that even though I can like train for my clients up to six hours at a time, reading a book, totally different. So I learned for two hours and then I'm good. But uh, Tyler made it a very comfortable experience and we finished recording this week. Now it's in the editing process and just really grateful to you for encouraging me to do that because I really didn't think about doing that when I wrote the book and it was really humbling to reread mm, the book yeah. and see what has changed in so many of the topics that were in the book, whether it was regarding women in leadership, mental health, like I know we're going to talk about today, um, all of those things, mentorship and how far we've come but also some of the strides we still need to make. So that was really interesting to go, hmm, the book's already outdated, but there we go. (laughs) Well, listen, I feel the same exact way. I mean, releasing my book in 2019 and then recording it in 2020 in the heart of the pandemic, the world changed. So, you know, time is so sensitive in how we never know what's going to happen. And um, recording it for me, I had to do it in one day. So you took the week, you kind of did it in increments. I did it over three weeks just because of my schedule nice. and the day that I could do it. Um, that's just what I was able to do. So I looked forward to it each week. It was like, here's a two hour protected window of sort of my time, something yeah. for me, not work related, not 
family related. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. But I was surprised to learn that there are people like you and others that they go in there and they just buckle down and get it done. And I thought, wow, rock stars. (laughs) Yeah, it's more like just got to get it over with. (laughs) I just got to keep moving because there's so much to be done. So, um, so Michelle, I do want to get to this uh, incredible story that I don't know how many people know. I mean, I've known you for a few years and it wasn't until you released the book that I, of course, you know, we talk about business mostly, right? All of us in working women at Tampa Bay that have connected, we're all, you know, women owned businesses trying to help each other grow and flourish and connect. We don't always get to the, the gritty nature of kind of what happens in our personal lives. And um, it's one of the reasons that I I wrote in life and in business in the title of my book, because, you know, my my past has created the person that's sitting here today, just like yours has created the person that you are today. Right. That's right. That's right. So Michelle is uh, a pretty incredible woman for many reasons, but um, you've made this third transformational plan gift to USF's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences to fund development. I love this so much. I'm going to read it slowly. To fund development of new faculty and resident research in treatment, resistant depression as it pertains to suicide, like bravo to you, my friend. Thank you. Thank Mm. you. It was time. (laughs) So proud of you. All right. So Michelle, I want you to share with our audience today, your why behind making this, because I know it runs deep for you personally. It does. You know, my why in, in number one, in terms of philanthropy, I tend to give to various organizations, causes that have either had some profound effect on me, they've helped me in my growth, and I just feel a responsibility to give back. Part of that's my makeup, working with nonprofits for 30 years. But when it comes to my personal giving, it -hmm. is something that I have to really feel I have a connection to. And so when I was thinking about a gift to USF, and this, again, this is my third gift. And the first two were personal. One was to study abroad. That's something that I did and to make education accessible. And for somebody mm-hmm. who put themselves through school was important. Mm-hmm. The second gift was for an irritable bowel disease center. And I suffer from Crohn's. Nobody wants to talk about that. Right. I think I was the first female donor to do that. Wow. So that's not a great topic, but now you see ads on TV all the time. And the third gift I really thought about, and and I think there's many things that go through my head. Number one is the connection and the why. And the second is, I think there's a misperception that the people that give have to be of a certain age. They have to have a certain amount of money. Mm -hmm. And I also decided that when I made gifts, I wanted to come forward, not necessarily to say, hey, look at me. It was to share with people that anybody can have an impact at any point in their life. Right. And so it was very intentional in making these gifts and be public because I know there's others that want to impact. What I didn't realize was when I started sharing the why behind those gifts, people will come up and say, I suffer from Crohn's too. 
I also had to put myself through school, you know, while pregnant or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And this third gift, I, I believe, and I know because I've talked to people about this as a result of my book, I believe people will also come forward and say, oh, I didn't really know. Or maybe they didn't catch that part in the book. And the reality was both of my parents were in the first graduating class at USF. Mm -hmm. And my father uh, went on to go to law school at Florida State, was in the first graduating class there. Wow. Was a very intelligent person, um, very well-known, prominent attorney uh, in, in Florida. And in the 80s, really struggled with alcohol and drug addiction. And about that time, he also came to the realization that he had mental illness. And at that time, you didn't talk about it. You don't, you wouldn't have seen commercials on TV about depression and the things right. we see now. You didn't talk about it. And he was on lithium. He was on that high end of the spectrum of mania, what they mm. refer to. So here's somebody with mania. They're also having drug and alcohol addiction, which sort of negates the medication. And it was, it was a difficult childhood to grow up in that environment. You felt like you were walking on eggshells all the time. And, uh, you know, my parents were divorced and I sort of became the, the parent, if you will, yeah. this individual. And it was very hard to see someone who was so intelligent and had so much promise and that deterioration through the addiction, mm. but also not really caring for and managing the disease in a responsible way. And it was a constant struggle. And I remember being told as a child, as early as eight years old, you know, Michelle, don't tell anybody about this or what I have. It could ruin my practice and, and all mm. the byproducts. So I sort of felt like I was alone. Like I think many sure, children sure. do and you're vulnerable because you're a child, you know, you can't drive yourself away from an unsafe situation. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, that was sort of how I grew up and that was an impetus on, on how I went down the path I did and being a type A goal oriented because I was in a structure that was very unstructured. And you're an and only child. I have a younger sister, five okay. years younger, mm -hmm. um, but she lived with my mom and mm -hmm. I lived with my dad. So, you know, I was really had a front row seat to that yeah. show and, you know, typical daughter, you know, they always say the first love of your life is your dad and yeah. you learn things that eventually what you look for in a mate. So I was always really cognizant of, wow, you know, I don't think I'll ever get married if this is how it's going to be. Right. <laughs> But I, I did learn a lot of lessons, um, you know, had therapy and, and did things that were really important to understand the disease. And how old were you when you started therapy? I was about 17 when mm -hmm. I really addressed that issue and going to adult children of alcoholics meetings and, and really understanding how to have and create boundaries as a young adult. And so I really put in the work early on and probably through my 20s. Well, let me, I'm sorry to interrupt because I'm so like, I'm hanging on every word you're saying, <laughs> yeah. but I think it's really important. I really want to know how you were introduced even to adult children of alcoholics. Like what did you Google? I mean, there was no Google then, right? So how yeah. did you find out about it? You know, I knew of it because of my dad. I knew he attended AA meetings. I knew of it from my mother. 
And I also, quite frankly, was exposed to it from my father. My father didn't want me to go down that path. And as some children do in high school, you know, uh, did things in high school and he would bring me to the meetings and say, if you don't, you know, continue to conduct yourself in this way, this is what it looks like. Mm. So it was real, ironically, it was my dad and his Irish Catholic way of saying, you know, I, I don't want you to be like me. And that was really my first introduction. Mm-hmm. And I just remember the older I got and experiences in college. And then when I went to live on my own, I would meet people that were more normal. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, my life really isn't that normal. Mm-hmm. And so I had an instance where I had a panic attack and decided to get into therapy. I couldn't really figure out the time what it was and got into therapy. Um, also did sort of that dual approach therapy and medication through a period of time. And that's where I really worked a lot on myself and situations and boundaries. And I'm so glad I did that then because it prepared me for how I would handle situations moving forward with my family, with people I would encounter. And it's always been a part of my life. But ironically, that's how it was introduced was a way to sort of, you know, uh, show me if I didn't behave, if I went down this path, this is what's going to happen to you. And you know, over the years, it was just a continual strained relationship. Um, my father wasn't at my wedding. Uh, we had an undercover cop there. I had restraining orders. It just, it deteriorated. And what I ultimately learned. Can I interrupt was, you again? Yeah. <laughs> Is that because he was so in his addiction? He, he was-, was in his addiction. He mm-hmm. had, um, a lot of manic episodes, mm-hmm. just very unsafe environment. And that process, I just started to learn that's not who the father, you know, I knew and Mm -hmm. it's the disease, but I also knew I needed to take a stand and uh, self-preserve what I had, what was starting to become a more normal life. And that's not easy. Anybody who has had a parent, a spouse, anybody that they're dealing with, with an addiction to create those boundaries particularly if it's somebody you love or family is really hard. And I never really got a lot of support in the process. Everywhere I would go, the court system to file paperwork, they would say, they look at the name and they go, this is your dad. Are you sure Mm -hmm. you want to do this? And I was like, yes. Mm -hmm. And I, I found even through the process, just not a lot of support because that's how it was built. And I was going through a court system where they all knew who my father was. And so it was a really difficult thing. But ultimately, that restraining order gave me the space to carve out uh, a normal life, have a breath, take a beat, maybe he got help. Ultimately, my father did um, become sober and worked on his mental health and started to make amends and, and started to turn a corner. The unfortunate thing was the use of drugs and alcohol took such a toll on his body that there were things that started to fail, let's just say. And he really couldn't um, come to terms with that and went to a dark place. Mm. And the first year, I wanna say my my oldest son was like one, that's when he committed suicide. And Mm. he did leave a note. It was addressed to my sister. And he had actually jumped off a building here in Tampa, not far from where I live. And I just remember thinking to myself, this the horror that I felt for people that found him or people mm. that maybe saw that. 
And then I was the one, I was the one in the family that had to tell people, I was the one that had to deal with, you know, the estate, all of that, which was- How old were you? How old were you? I was 31 at the time. Well, let me take a breath with you for a moment and pause because it is, um, it it could be a a trigger for anybody to hear this. So I want people to know that it it is, only with good intentions that we share this story today is sometimes difficult to hear, but I think that really the only way that we normalize this conversation is to really have that conversation. Mm -hmm. And I am so sorry for your loss and I'm so sorry for your family's loss. Um, I I just wanted to make sure that I honored this moment and and told you that because a life lost um, because of mental illness, um, because of anything, right? It's just a loss in and of itself. But you, I'm sure, um, because of how your father was such a prominent figure in the community and because it was so um, traumatic the way he took his life, I mean, I I can't only, I can't imagine. And I, you know, being in this world of talking about mental health, um, I've learned so much. I've learned that I'm not supposed to say committed suicide, even though myself, I tried to commit suicide and everybody that met me with that, I said, well, I am the one who tried it. So I can't say it the way I want to say it. The truth is that, um, when we say died by suicide, it now doesn't sound like murder is what it was told to me. And it took me a while to kind of understand, but to be around the real professionals that have been in the mental health arena, which I have not, you know, even though I've worked with physicians my whole career, I wasn't in the psychiatry or the psychology world until just recently, um, since 2019. But I I wanted to make sure that I address that. And I make, um, I'm very, I'm very sad for your loss, Michelle. I'm very sad, not just for your loss, but how that loss happened for you and your family, because anybody that knows Michelle Terman knows that you are one of the most poised professional women out there. Um, So to know that you have been through such a traumatic event in your life and that you have been able still to conduct your life in such an honorable way is really just... um, well, you deserve, you deserve applause for that really. So, okay. I've now interrupted your story. It's okay. No, and I appreciate that because you get so used to moving forward. Sometimes you don't take that pause to recognize how far you've come and the things that you you've done. And, you know, as everything, you just sort of move forward and I can talk about it very comfortably because I've kind of come to terms with it. But it, you know, it was shocking. Um, I think though, I always knew, and for a couple of years, I had said to my mom and sister, you know, I think you need to prepare for this. Mm. I just felt that this was in his makeup. And, you know, at the end of the day, I still was in that mode of, I have to take care of all these things. And, and my sister was really in that space where probably a majority of people are where they just can't function. Mm-hmm. And, but I had done the work early on. So for me, I often tell people, I really mourned the death of my father as I knew him before that day. Mm. So there were pieces and moments in time, like my wedding or getting engaged or having my son and things like that, that, that were already sort of mourned because it wasn't this typical relationship. So I think by the time this happened, not to take away from that experience, 
I had already been mourning it for so long because he was not the person that I knew growing up. And it was getting further and further away with every year with all of those challenges. And so, you know, you kind of walk through that journey. And, you know, for me, I dealt with it in many ways. They always tell people there were sort of three ways. Number one, there's my faith. There's the Irish Catholic person where, you know, anybody who's watching, you know, no judgment here, but it's a sin. So you're trying to reconcile that. And then you're trying to reconcile the empathy for people to say, he really was that unhappy. He really was, that was his last wish, whether we like it, respect it or not, that was his final decision. And I had to find a place to sort of respect that. Mm. And then the third piece for me, where I've come to is, it's just unfortunate. You know, he has three grandsons and there's so much of life Mm. that he missed out on. And, And but I'm able to look at it and, and for what it is. And I try not to stew in that too long. And, you know, this gift for me, I, I think what I've tried to do since that happened is number one, put it in the book and start the conversation. The second step for me was um, serving on the board of Donate Life America because that was a positive way uh, to deal with uh, organ and tissue donation. Um, it is still a topic that's not discussed mm. um, where we have opportunities because it is an opportunity if somebody passes away of suicide or drug or alcohol addiction in a positive way to pay it forward, what can be used of the body mm. for those that are living. And that's a stigma right now in tissue yeah. donation. And I, I think we need to change that. But for me, it was a way to say, what can I find the positive and the good? Because there, yeah. or I would just stew in that moment forever. So then the third thing that became really natural was, you know, there was this insurance policy I had since I was a young girl and my dad being a personal injury and wrongful death yeah. uh, attorney, you know, I've had it forever. And I just sort of held on to it. And it was really sort of the last tie that I had to my dad that was sort of like, it's there, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know what? it's time to do something good with that. And so in my way of being philanthropic, again, not a lot of people, you know, I'll be 49 this year, uh, make planned gifts at this age. But I went, you know what, at the end of the day, I have this vehicle that I'm not using. I'm in a position I don't need to have it for my children. And I think it was also a way to continue to come from a place of abundance and not be scared and say, you know what, it needs to do some good. So I decided that I would create a planned gift and give it to research that dealt with depression, but primarily what that means around suicide. Mm. And, and that's what the gift will go towards, you know, latitude there for whether it's salaries or whatever research they need, but really specific for depression and, and how that equates to, to suicide. We interrupt this awesome podcast to tell you about our sponsor, Thai Technology. They are a voice over IP phone company with superior voice services to businesses across the United States. So get this, Thai Technology only takes on referral customers. What does that mean? Their entire client roster is filled with satisfied customers. So why do I love them so much? Because they're the very best when it comes to excellence in customer services. 
So they're local here in Tampa Bay, but that doesn't mean that they can't service your amazing organization. If you mention this podcast to Thai Technology, you will get the first three months for free. So don't forget to mention the broken road to mental health in life and in business. Thanks for listening. For me, it felt right because my father had a linkage to USF. Mm. It felt right because it was a way to support where I think we're lacking, that a lot of people are not supporting the research part of it. And it was a way, I think, to find another positive in something that was so negative. Yeah. And so you know, that's sort of the third gift that I gave USF, but it, you know, that's that pattern of really intentionality mm-hmm. and what it means. And it took a while to get there. I mean, I've had this for over 40 years, mm-hmm. but I finally said, you know what, I, I need to do this. And um, it feels good. It feels right. But I also recognize that just by even doing that, talking to you today, re-recording my book and reading the chapters yeah. about dealing with that relationship it, it, it's even more present, this topic and more important. And I'm like, okay, it wasn't when I wrote my book, it was all about women empowerment and women in leadership, but that was a chapter. And yeah. now here we are three years later, and it is such a topic oh my God. on so many levels, whether when we look at school shootings or whatever it is, I have two friends close to me in the last two weeks who had a family member commit suicide. And I was their second call not, I'm not saying that because, oh, we're such good friends. It's because they knew they had read my book and they knew me. We were friends. They knew they're like, you've dealt with it. What do I do? Who do I call for a cleaning company, Michelle? Right. I mean, really gritty details. And so whether, you know, fortunately or unfortunately I'm here. And I think that's another way that I could help support others. Mm-hmm. If they're going through that, I don't have all the answers, but sometimes talking to people, Mm -hmm. you know, that are going through it. But I will tell you, you shared with me a minute ago about the fact of that you had thought about suicide. So there's that side of the coin. Mm -hmm. And you and I had talked about, but I think we also need to talk about those that are left behind. Totally. And because I often wonder, I do believe, you know, when you get to heaven, what's that going to look like? And what's, what's the question I'm going to ask? And, and I've gone through every emotion there. But I think at the end of the day, I also feel like if people understood the stories of those left behind, whether it's the challenges or the good parts, Mm -hmm. because it really is a selfish act. I mean, at Mm -hmm. the end of the day, and I don't, I don't mean that in a mean spirited way of people now are even thinking about it, but it truly is a selfish act. Mm -hmm. And when you talk to people that are left behind to pick up the pieces with no answers, some don't get a letter, Mm -hmm. you know, some don't get any of that. Some are not able to even maybe do the things that I've been able to do. Um, my sister has a very different path. They're stuck and it affects many decisions in their life. And sometimes they're never whole. Yeah. Those repercussions, I think, also need to be discussed. Not to shame people. Right. But I think there's it's a dual conversation of those who are left behind and those who were thinking about it mm-hmm. to, to take themselves out of that. I, I think that would be a really interesting difficult conversation. Well, oh my, am I happy to be having it because um, I think the powerful, you've said so many powerful things, but the power in being able to call somebody with lived experience is I get every time somebody dies by suicide, I get a phone call and I don't 
take that for granted. I just know that, or anybody that's suffering from addiction that, that knows me or has read my book, I get a call or a message. And I'm so grateful and I honor that um, so deeply, but I know it's because there is no shame in telling me because I've already been in that place. So you offer this space for somebody else to just say, well, I'm not going to be judged because there's already so much stigma surrounding it. I'm going to talk to somebody that is just going to hear me and hold that space for them and allow them to cry or share or scream. Um, And then I, you know, when you talk about, uh, so I, attempted to end my life more than once. And I, um, you know, uh, it's 27 years later, right? So like you, I've gotten help, a lot of help, like, like everyday kind of help. And like you mentioned about your sister, or and this, this is so common that when other people that are living with somebody that is addicted or suffering through mental illness, when they don't get help, when they don't have support, when they don't seek it out or, or get that, that's why I asked you that question of how you ended up there, because that moment is such a crossroad, right? Like that was the, the place where if you didn't get that encouragement to go, God only knows how it would have turned out for you, right? And I watched that and have watched that for many years now of people that get left behind that have never dealt with it or that are still angry, or maybe they're just dealing with it now, you know, and that conversation is so important because the, at the end of the day for myself, I want to be able to share my own vulnerability. So nobody else feels alone is that it was, um, it was my family that stopped me. It was that thought of what it would be like, but I, today, when I know that somebody has died by suicide, my first thought, and this has not changed for all of these years, is thank God they're out of pain. Because when somebody is, because I can only speak from personal experience, but when you're in that much pain and you want to end your life, you can't see anything else but that pain. I could not see anything else but that pain. And I didn't think there was a way out. And through intervention and through help and through a psychiatrist and through medication and through 12 step recovery, all of that stuff, I am able to now, and now it's like, you know, I got to walk, I got to run, I got to meditate, I got to help others, you got to do service, but not everybody gets that. And what you got was like this precious, I feel like you were handed that precious gift. Like it was almost one last gift from your father. I don't want you to end up this way. So here is this support system. So can you speak to like, it's, it's really impactful. I want you to know, knowing that you have done the work and that is kind of what has, not to say that you didn't feel pain or go through your own adversity. Like you were just like, I'm good. (laughs) I don't want to paint that picture, but that you have been, you have had tools and resources So can you speak to, to that? Because I think what happens most, Michelle, what we have witnessed, because you've heard it too. I never knew you hear this all the time. I would have never known that they were in so much pain. I would have never known that they were struggling because they never said anything. So can you speak to a little bit to um, the value of yourself going out and getting that help and how that's really impacted your life? I know you, you mentioned it before, but I really think that 
that is tremendous because the people that are left behind and the families that are going through it with somebody that is in their disease of alcoholism or addiction are often more traumatized than the people living it because at least, you know, I could anesthetize myself. I didn't have to think about the pain you were in. I was drunk and high. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I will say it's a, it's an ongoing daily piece of my life. And it really became intentional in my early twenties. You know, I had this panic attack. I uh, started realizing it wasn't normal and I had this epiphany and I thought, you know, if I ever have a healthy relationship at that time, I didn't know if I'd be married, but if I right. wanted to have a healthy relationship with another male, get married, if that was in the cards, whatever, if I didn't want to walk through life with this sort of chip on my shoulder that, you know, I, I don't have the emotions. I don't have the capability because I grew up in this home, what have you. I didn't want to be that person. I didn't want to have a reason to have those shortcomings. Right. And I just was really cognizant of that. But I would say that even after that very intense period in my 20s of getting that help and therapy and setting boundaries, some of it was spiritual, I'll be quite honest, and being drawn to the church there, you know, everybody's different, but that was what it was for me um, and and feeling enveloped and supported. Um, It's a daily piece. And I, I try sometimes not to make it that. And what I mean by that is it's a conscious decision in everything I do, whether it is, you know, um, having a glass of wine, mm-hmm. right? It's always in the back of my head that I am a child of an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. So that carries me in the decisions I make. It carries me who I surround myself with. I can't really be around people that are highly intoxicated. I'm very uncomfortable with that. So there are things that I have seen and have a front row seat to that, how I conduct myself, who I choose to be around, support those choices because I don't want to do that. But what I would say is that was really important early on doing therapy because I I now know, I know what it feels like. I know what it's like to have that panic attack and anxiety. I know when it's time to say, you know what, I need to get in therapy or I need to recognize that. The even bigger picture now is, you know, I have have two boys, right? One that's a senior going off to college, one just started high school and and knowing that this mental illness and alcohol addiction has been on, on my side of the family, many individuals touched by that, as we say, touched by fire. Yeah. And I'm really cognizant now of, am I giving them the tools? Not because I'm telling them they're going to be that way or I'm that way because they see a different version. <laughs> you know, right. we're not perfect, but they don't have that type of parent. Right. Um, but to say, you need to recognize these things and have the tools. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're going through all the things you go through when you have teenagers. Right. But that's been the biggest piece to not recognize that mental illness or addiction is in their family history, I think is really the first thing, if I could say anything, because I don't like to give advice because everybody's so different. But that for me and owning that was a way to say, if I know that, then how am I preparing these young adults to then recognize I need help or there's no shame if I want to go see a counselor or would you go with me? Because for me, I think that's been the biggest saving grace. I don't have any shame in calling, getting in there, doing the work, but it's because I know what that other side looks like. Yeah. So, you know, that's been really in, important to me um, throughout my life and, and knowing, you know, and sensing, you know, you know, if you're off balance, you know, if you're in a situation you don't need to be in, you know what the stressor is. 
And I also know that there is that genealogy piece. I do believe in that. Um, if it's in your family makeup, that certain decisions could lead to something. It may not be for somebody else, but it's going to be for me. And so I'm really cautious about some of the decisions I make and who I choose to surround myself with, how I respond to stressors and being in tune with what I'm feeling and and doing what I need to do when it comes to, to mental health. And right now it is, how do you impart that wisdom to, to individuals who now are growing up in a time where you know, they have friends that are dying. They have friends that are dying of overdoses, of suicides. I don't recall that growing up. I didn't have to deal with that growing up. Um, Maybe, you know, you got arrested or you did some illegal activity, but I really can't say that I ever experienced any of that growing up. And it's amazing that those tools have come in handy, unfortunately, um, with their friends or people that they know in school is so much more common. So I think back, you know, when I was going through it, I thought, oh, I'm the only one. Yeah. I wasn't the only one. I found so many other kids later in life, like, oh, you had a similar parent or you were dealing in, in a household with mental illness. Now there's so many. Mm. And my kids are learning things that I didn't learn until my 20s. So I really have no choice mm-hmm. <laughs> in the matter to mm-hmm. have these dialogue with them and share my experiences. It's funny, neither one of them have read my book. it's dedicated to them and it dawned on me this week when I was doing the audible and they're like okay well now mom I'll probably read your book because they're in a different generation right sure sure. everything and I was like well that'd be kind of great because it's dedicated to you like I want you to learn the things that you don't you hear a portion of it but not everything because they think of you as mom and I want them to hear the failures I want them to hear about those challenges I think it'll click for them but you can't force them until they're ready but yeah. the tools is huge. It's huge. But then I also know people, they're not ready. I'll talk to people all the time. They're not in the same place. They're not ready. And that's okay. You have to it's meet okay. them where they're at. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's ever present being vigilant when it comes to that mental health and the addiction, because I just know it's, there is a hereditary piece. I, I believe in that. And you just really have to pay attention to that every day, not to where you're like obsessed with it, mm-hmm. but it just becomes part of your makeup. I just, I'm just more aware of that. Well, there is such a thing as generational trauma mm-hmm. and there you, you have been able to break the cycle. That's how I feel about myself too. I mean, I'm in a very big Irish family where there's a lot of alcoholism and there's a lot of um, lack of communication and there's a lot of um, silent scorn and there's a lot of, um, we're not going to talk about this and we're not going to share it. It's very difficult when you have then broken the cycle and know that there's a better way. And I, I also understand not everybody is ready for that. I think it's pretty magical, Michelle, that you took that turn and got that help I think it's probably been a great, well, I hope I I can see what a beautiful young woman you are today and how you've helped people and you've dedicated your life and your business to helping nonprofits and um, philanthropy. It just goes to show that, you know, uh, we get taught a lot in in recovery to do service. And um, you certainly have done a lot of service. Um, And I want to mention that when I, uh, release my book. I I made my stepson read it. I literally made him. I said, "You're going to read this book, and then I want you to summarize it." So I had him do a book report. I'm like, "Well, you're in high school, you know. You're 
you've done book reports yes. before. And it, to me, even though I don't think he wanted to read it today and I, you know, whether it's an impact or not of, of what my story has had on his life, his Instagram bio says, what are you doing for your mental health today? Mm-hmm. So I think that your ability to share with the younger generations that it is okay to not mm-hmm. be okay mm-hmm. is super impactful because it is that younger generation. I feel the same. I don't remember all the suicides or all the overdoses. There was certainly no lockdowns and there were, so they have to deal with, and plus it's all online and visible for everybody to see. It's one of the reasons we didn't know about so many that were suffering, you know, cause it wasn't posted on YouTube. But um, I, I definitely think that now at least we have um, a, a little bit more of a freedom to speak more openly and hopefully continue to, to break the cycle and to normalize this conversation. And certainly your gift um, for this research and treatment is really um, going to be so impactful. And I'm so appreciative of your generosity and your purpose and you're turning that pain into a purpose. It is, um, you know, it's kind of overwhelming and I'm proud to know you. Well, I appreciate that. If you think about it, you know, I'm doing it for people just like you, mm-hmm. you know, someone that you found a way to overcome it. You've thought about suicide. You've had that. Well, hopefully this research and the tools that come out of it will go to reach others. Yeah. So it's sort of interesting that you and I are having this conversation because maybe not today, mm-hmm. maybe it was 27 years ago, but those are the individuals that I'm trying to, to reach yep. and, and being part of this project and being part of the research and supporting it so that we do try to help as soon as we can and they have those tools. So, you know, and the only thing that I have learned beyond what we've talked about today and it was very present this week when I was uh, reminded by someone who just lost somebody who was seeking their why. Why did this happen? There was no note, there wasn't anything. And again, I don't like to give advice. So for me, with my father, I can use commit suicide pretty um, firmly because it was a commitment. There was a trail of how he set this up. It was an intentional, it was something he worked on for some time. I can't say that for everyone else, but even in that case, even when there's a note, even when they, you know, my dad purposely cashed a check for a thousand dollars and that was sitting there in the hotel room, guess how much it cost at that time to cremate him a thousand dollars. He knew exactly it was the will was sitting on the table. So not everybody will have some of that closure. And I had reminded this person this week, I said, you go, you take the trip. If you need to see where it happened, yeah, but you, you may not get the answers you're looking for. And I think that is probably the most difficult piece when I talk to people. I mean, there's many pieces difficult, yeah. but that is probably the one that if you, if I could just wrap my arms around those individuals, cause you may never know the why and you may never get those answers. Mm-hmm. And that's usually the piece when I talk to people that they struggle with the most once they get through of like, they're not here is the why. And so I can share my why of what I'm doing, but sometimes in this equation, you don't, you don't know the why. And that's just a really difficult place to be in. And I wish I had those answers for that because that's the thing that keeps 
kind of, you know, still sits in my brain a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, what, one of the chapters uh, in my book is for the families, you know, who have suffered of loss and addiction. Um, and, and Michelle, I'm going to announce it right here on the show. Her next book, everybody, will be for those left behind. <laughs> Just setting you up for it. But I do, yeah. I think it is so, so important because that is the conversation I have all the time for those that are left behind. How do we navigate through? How do we heal? How, where is the help? Um, hold my hand, help me through it. Hold my hand, help me through it. So, all right, we're gonna uh, hopefully do a part two when Michelle is going to release the second book. Okay. No pressure, no pressure. <laughs> Michelle doesn't have anything else to write a second book. But I do believe that um, this will be one of many catapults to continue this conversation, um, whether it be here, whether it be through one of the wonderful organizations that we are involved in to get more people to have that conversation, that lived experience, because it is very powerful that you are, you are that person that is there to share what happened to you. And that's what I was taught. Like, I can't, I don't give it, but I don't tell people what to do. Mm -hmm. I just share what has happened with me and what has helped me and then allow people to, you know, do the same for themselves. So thank you so much for being here, Michelle. I'm so proud of you. My pleasure. And thank you for still being here. Yeah. Thank you, you for know, saying that's that. That's important. So you're a gift. Thank you, my friend. Don't forget to check out Thai Technology. Anyone that mentions this podcast or the Facebook show will receive three free months of service. T-I-E Technology. Check them out.